Hey everyone, I am Reva and just want to take a moment and thank you for listening to our studio podcast. Although we are here in Greenville, South Carolina, we are grateful for your support to see the message of Jesus go out all over the world. In case you are not aware, we have a YouTube channel, which you can find the link in our podcast bio. We hope you enjoy this week's talk and it encourages you and it helps you to be the human God designed you to be. So with that, let's get right to it. Well, I'm excited. We're going to jump into part three of the life of Daniel. And I recognize many of you have been here for the first two parts. Some of you, you're jumping on. This is part one to you. And I recognize that. So I'm going to do a very quick recap. But I'm going to ask if you have missed the other first two parts, please do yourself and do me a favor. It'll help to contextualize a lot of what we're building and going after. It's on the podcast, completely free. Go listen to it. It's Life of Daniel Part 1 and Life of Daniel Part 2. Today is Part 3, and we're going to continue and pick up kind of where we left off. Rick Rubin says this, pay attention to the culture without being driven by culture. Pay attention to culture without being driven by the culture. My three goals in this series is kind of three ideas, questions that I want us to wrestle with. One is to gain an increased understanding of God's view of humanity. That's been one of my primary goals. The other primary goal is God cared deeply about humanity and how he's inviting us to participate in the mission of Jesus in culture. And then the third thing is wrestling with the idea, why is the conversation of Christians being engaged in parts of culture important and vital? Those are kind of the three frameworks that I've been working through each week and bringing all of us to a place to understand God's view of humanity, why he loves and cares deeply about humanity, and he's inviting it to participate in the mission of Jesus in culture and why it's vital and important for us to be involved in culture. So we started this study on Daniel, who was alive around 2,500 years ago. He was involuntarily brought into a Babylonian empire, and over time, he was trained in the customs and the language of an empire that had what we would call a polytheistic culture, which means many gods and many goddesses. So in other words, your worship was split across ideas of what was out there. And Daniel, who was a Hebrew, a Jewish man, was brought into this culture involuntarily and was, if you will, forced to embrace a culture, a religion that's vastly different than worshiping one God. And over time, we see God place favor on him and three of his friends to the point that they become governors, they become leaders. In fact, Daniel was put in charge over all the sorcerers and everyone involved in witchcraft. But yet he participated in only worshiping one God. It's one of the most mind-blowing contrasts of how is that even possible? So this really has been a study into understanding how did this even happen? And what I hope it inspires you, it's actually possible. It's actually possible. He was an advisor to foreign kings, and he became a minister in a government of a polytheistic culture. All the while, he worshiped one God. Where we left off in Daniel chapter 2 is at the very end, the whole chapter was about basically Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had a dream. And he consulted with all of his astrologists, all of his sorcerers, all of his witchcraft individuals. He consulted with all of them, and they all said, tell us your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. And he upped the ante. He said, no, you have to tell me what my dream was. 
and then you interpret it. And they're like, King, we cannot do that. That's impossible. There's no way to access what you dreamed. We can interpret if you just tell us. He said, no, you tell me what my dream is and interpret it. If you can't do it, then I'm killing you all. So no one could possibly tell him the dream. So he began to kill off all of his, what you call the Chaldeans or the astrologers or the sorcerers, which is also known as the wise men, which is the connection to the birth of Jesus and the wise men going to find, the birth, to find Jesus at his birth. He began to kill them off. When the guy comes to Daniel's house, because Daniel's in that group, when the guy comes to Daniel's house, Daniel said, what's going on? He said, the king commissioned me to kill you all because no one can tell him a dream. And Daniel said, give me a second. Put me in front of the king. So Daniel goes in front of the king, and the king tells him, tell me the dream and interpretation. Daniel said, all right, I'll be right back. So Daniel, I don't know what exactly what he does, but he goes away. And he consults with God, and God tells him the dream. And in the dream, king Nebuchadnezzar, king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about an idol. And this big statue was made out of different material. And Daniel sees it, and God gives Daniel the interpretation. And basically it did. These, this is the image of the next four kingdoms that will happen on this earth, four next empires. And after that, the kingdom of God will come and be established forever. And many, most, most scholars and theologians speak to those four kingdoms was the Babylonian Empire, was the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and then Jesus shows up on the scene and introduces what we call the kingdom. So this is the dream. So Daniel comes in and tells the king, this was your dream, and this is the interpretation. And as a result of that, King Nebuchadnezzar elevate Daniel even more to a place of authority in his empire. That's where we left off. So today, we're going to jump into chapter 3. So if you want to get your apps or your Bibles open to chapter 3, we're going to jump right in. And today, we're going to, we're going to be reading about another really significant moment. It was a defining moment but it's not actually about Daniel. It's about his three friends that we meet in chapter one. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were their Babylonian names. But their Hebrew name was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The reason why I want to talk about these three guys, because in Daniel chapter one, it's always Daniel and these three friends are always connected through Daniel chapter one. And there's some principles in there about being in culture that I want to extract today. So if you're in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Are you guys with me? Yes. All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Pause right there. 60 cubits is roughly 90 feet. So this statue is 90 feet tall. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers, officials, to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Jump down to verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. What's fascinating is after the dream of an idol, Nebuchadnezzar builds one. 
And what's even more interesting is that the idol in the dream was made out of different material, so King Nebuchadnezzar makes sure it's made out of gold. It's amazing what you do. If you, I want you to just work with me a little bit. Jump into the mind of someone that does that. Uh, jump into the intentions of a man that is clearly a narcissist. Jump into the mind of a man that clearly it built his entire empire on the idea that he gets worshipped. He, if you understand ancient culture, it was common for pharaohs, for kings, for rulers to become deity, a living deity. So the idea of being worshipped is not foreign to ancient kings. So he had the dream about a kingdom crumbling. He thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to opposite that, and I'm going to build a statue the entire world has to worship. Now, the challenge for us in modern culture, we don't have idols in our culture. You can go to other parts of the world. It's incredibly common and is still active today in many other cultures, especially in the Eastern realm of the world. But in the West, we don't necessarily have an idol in the center of Greenville that the mayor had commanded us to bow down to. So how do we take this concept that's very familiar in an Eastern context and what's the parallel over here in a Western context? You see, another way to look at an idol is the thing you have to check with before you obey God. That anything in your life that you have to check with before you say yes to God, that would be considered an idol in a Western context. When God calls you to do something, and it may not be some task, it's just simply following Jesus. When you have decided to step into that mission of just following Jesus as the disciple, anything that you have to reference or check with before you go into more following Jesus, you can today say, that's an idol in my life. You see, an idol demands your character, demands your integrity. It demands your attention. It demands your money. It demands your time. It demands your affection. What's interesting is culture is actually the result of what you worship. Culture is actually the result of what you've submitted yourself to. I want to propose to you that the culture that we live in today, the broad culture, not necessarily the culture that's defined in this room and by the life that we have chosen to live, but just the culture that we are living in today is the result of submitting yourself to something. So it's safe to say that your affection, your attention, whatever draws that actually creates the environment that you live in. What's also known as the culture that's in you is the culture you create outside of you. I want you to just ponder this for a moment because culture right now, it's begging you to give it your affection. So here we have a story where Nebuchadnezzar raises this image and he said, when you hear the music, I want you to bow down. So this is where we're going to continue the story. Let's go down to same chapter, but we're going to go into verse 8 and then we're going to jump to verse 12. At this time, some astrologers come forward and denounce the Jews. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. The first portion of scripture to this portion of scripture, the entire world bows down to this except for these three guys. 
and the Chaldeans, the astrologers, now we're starting to see the tension between the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the Jewish man, Daniel and his three friends. We're starting to see the tension. One thing you have to recognize when you're in culture, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be jealousy. There's going to be someone that wants your seat of power. So here we have a moment. I would propose to you that the Chaldeans, the astrologers, were waiting for a moment to expose the heart of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it was this moment they were waiting for when they recognized they didn't bow down. Then they ran to the king and said, that decree you made, I found them people that are not following that decree. The fascinating thing about when you start understanding culture, if you don't feel tension, if you don't feel internal conflict about the world that you're living in, it's probably because you're going in the same direction as the culture. Your goal is not to get comfortable in culture. And a lot of times we're like, man, I don't like tension. I think it consequently just kind of make all that go away and just kind of fit in or just kind of be a part of the environment. And we have this, this idea that if I just kind of sneak my way in and then I take off my uniform and say, actually, I follow Jesus. We think that's the strategy. When you begin to submit yourself to a culture like that, pretty soon you recognize you're going in the exact same direction the culture's going. So if you don't feel resistance in your life, if you don't feel opposition or tension, you may want to check yourself today. You may want to recognize maybe I've embraced this culture I'm in. The challenge is we've been told get out of it. Today, I'm saying don't get out of it. Just adjust yourself. Do whatever's necessary to get back into a place of tension. To get back into a place like, I actually don't belong here in the sense that it feels like my tribe and my people, but I am actually called here. And the challenge we have, we've been drawing lines for centuries now of separating ourselves from culture. And guess who's occupying the seats in culture? because we vacated it. So we have to be people that are okay with opposition, with tension. So here we have this moment where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now exposed, if you will. So they come to the king, and the king is, is angry. But I, I want to ask, I want you guys to just dwell with me. How, how are you able to not actually bow down to a culture? How are you actually able to be in a position where you can be in the middle of an entire nation is submitting themselves to this idea? I believe the key can be found in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. And it says that Daniel purposed in his heart. And the context of that passage actually includes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see the word purpose, let me tell you what the word purpose means. It, the root word means to lay, to set down to arrange, to fix, to stand, to put, install, mount, establish, and confirm. That's what purpose means. And the challenge is, purpose is very much like I am making a vow, a non-negotiable vow. The challenge is, when you start to make your vows negotiable, you are now going in the flow of culture. And what we find in Daniel and these three men is that they determine to never negotiate their vows. What are the vow for? 
a valid standard. And oftentimes when we're having life experience that goes against that vow, what culture teaches us, adjust the vow. Just, just make it a little bit more flexible because your experience proves that you should no longer follow the vow to the way you've made purpose it in your heart. The challenge is this, is that pretty soon your vows begin to go away and all of a sudden you're going in the same flow of culture. You see, my commitment to my wife, the vows I made to her on our wedding day, the rest of my life, I am responsible if anything threatens to decrease this vow, this is negotiable, not the vow. And culture teaches you, just renegotiate your covenants. Just renegotiate your vow to whatever fits your life and fits your desires and your emotions in that moment. So you, when you are living in the, on this planet, you're going to have to purpose in your heart to never negotiate your commitment to Jesus. It's very easy to say that when you come up front and give your life to Jesus. It's when you get into the throes of culture, that's where it's tested. That's where the actual pressure comes. And so here we have these three men that said, we are not negotiating our vow. So let's go down to chapter, uh, verse 16 of the same chapter. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is a powerful thing here. I mean, this shows you how committed they were to not breaking their vows. But what makes it even more fascinating to me is that their experience did not determine their theology. What they says, God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we are still committed to him. Oftentimes in life, I've seen so many people say, I'm committed to God. Then they have a life experience that doesn't match their theology of what you think God was going to do in that moment. So you adjust your theology to match your experience. God, my provider, and then nothing happens. Well, maybe he's not my provider. So we begin to adjust and we begin to add colors and shades to God that doesn't have that. You see, your experience is not the definer of your theology. Your life experience is not designed to shape your perspective of God. So Daniel, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know what? God can totally deliver us. But if he doesn't, we are still committed to this thing. So when you are in the throes of culture, when you are just being a human on this earth, be careful that your theology is not shaped by your experiences. Be careful that your perspective of God is not reduced down to your human experience. I believe God can heal. And then he doesn't. You know, maybe God doesn't want to heal. 
Maybe, maybe it's not his will. And all of a sudden, you've now introduced yourself to a whole train of thought that actually violates the very principle of who God is. Because you wanted it to be understandable. You wanted it to make sense. You wanted to appease this tension you're not willing to live with. You have to be okay with this mystery of who God is. You have to be okay. God can totally deliver me. He can heal me. He can provide for me. He can do all that. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't change my commitment to him. If you want to get swallowed up in culture, then base your theology on your experience. All right, we're going to keep going here. I'm flying through this chapter today. I am flying literally in a fighter jet right now. All right, let's go to verse 28. So they went into the furnace, and they didn't die. In fact, they said there was a fourth individual in the furnace. The furnace was so hot that the guy that threw them in, someone liked that they were the fourth person in the furnace. But when they threw them in the fire, the soldiers that threw the men in the fire died simply from the heat. This is how hot this thing was. And as they looked in, they see a fourth one. Now, all children's books will say that was Jesus. But if you look at the original language, it's not. It actually, the original language more lines up with the son of gods. Remember, this is a polytheistic culture. This is a, a culture that doesn't embrace one God. It embraces all the lowercase g gods and goddesses. So when they see a fourth individual in there, they're like, the son of gods is in there. Now, we've translated it, and we put it in our children's books, and some scholars will say, I just want to propose to you, it's still up for discussion of who the fourth person was. Now, I know we're like, man, that's got to be God. It's got to be Jesus. And I'm cool with that. But I wanted their perspective was, no, this is just the son of God's because it fit into the polytheistic frame and worldview. Why is this important? Why am I even highlighting this? Because the world doesn't know how to interpret something if it's not in their view. And we're getting all bothered, like, how come they're calling me a psychic? Because that's the only language they have. They don't have the language that comes from Scripture. They have a language that comes from their worldview. So you are involved in culture. Quit auto-correcting everybody around you. We're like, oh, edit that, edit that, edit that. You're not saying that right. You don't, no, no. Just let them tell you their perspective and perception. And you'll be amazed at how much, if you just let that take place, the opportunity to engage in conversation. And we've got so many believers in cultural autocorrecting and auto-editing everything anyone's saying. I thought that was a really good point, but that's just me. I, <laughs> let's keep going. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. I mean, that's just how narcissists like that. Just cut them off. And their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Yeah. Pretty powerful. 
what I want to highlight here, he just added God to their pantheon of gods. Why am I even highlighting this? Sometimes we think revival looks a certain way. But in this case, God just now entered the conversation in the mind of a people that had many gods. And I want to celebrate that for just a second. I want you to just connect with me on this for a moment. Sometimes we have an expectation of what should happen when God shows up. Sometimes they simply add your God to their gods. And that should be celebrated. That should at least be acknowledged and honored because before they had no view of this particular God. But now they do. Now we begin to see, and you begin to see this throughout Scripture. And this is why when you jump forward to the New Testament, Paul is talking to a generation of people that have many gods. This is why he begins to emphasize one God, one spirit. He's bringing people into a kingdom biblical worldview. And I see so many followers of Jesus get so frustrated when people, all they do is only add God to their world of gods instead of celebrating it and praying that begins a journey of a process so people can begin to realize there's only one God. So I want to highlight that today. When you're involved in culture, celebrate victories like that. It may not match your worldview, but it adjusted theirs. Also remember, when you get thrown in the fire, anything that throws you in the fire will get consumed. You won't get consumed. Okay, we need to wrap this thing up. We'll read last, read verse, I know, I know. I have more room in the next gathering, so you, you can stay for that, I guess. Actually, don't. We don't have room, so... Let's go to verse 30. We're just going to, I want to wrap it up with kind of one more thing that I believe is important as we talk about being engaged in culture. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So here we have another moment. We see it in Daniel chapter 1. We see it in Daniel chapter 2. We see it again in Daniel chapter 3. We see the king elevate these Hebrews to a place of incredible stature in a dark polytheistic culture. But I want to propose to you, it didn't actually change the entire nation. Just because you get promoted doesn't mean everything changes. It just means you got promoted. I don't know why that resonates with me. It resonates with me because sometimes we get promoted and we're like, why is there anything happening? Guess what? God is just promoting you and he's bringing you more and more into a place where kingdoms can begin to happen wherever you go. And I know all of us would love for there to be just a full-blown repentance. But guess what? It's the long game. Culture is a long game. If it was easy, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. But when you're engaged in culture and carrying out the mission of Jesus, you have to have the long game in mind. The last thing I want to highlight today is get together with your friends and change the world. Yeah. That's what I love about these three guys. They said, let's change the world together. Yeah. You see, sometimes we're trying to change culture in the world by ourselves, but we're not actually getting together with friends to change the world. Yeah. Some of us are so isolated in our world that we actually don't have any friends in that context. And that's what makes these guys powerful. 
That's what makes this whole story unique. They're actually stronger together. Find people that fit your future, not your past. Who you surround yourself with will determine where you go in life. And a lot of us are holding on to people that fit our past, but they're not taking us into the future. This is a very lighthearted message, as you can tell. This is, you should walk out of here inspired and just feel good in a warm, fuzzy heart. But surround yourself with people that are willing to go into the fire with you. Run with people that are willing to move forward into culture and not retreat from culture. Don't go isolated. Don't play by yourself. Get together with your friends and change the world. Some of my most deepest, meaningful relationships are with men and women that we change the world together and there is a bond that is unbreakable. When you see each other, you pick up where you left off. There's something about doing life with friends and changing the world together. Pick something and go after it together. You'll make a ton of mistakes along the way. But guess what? Can you imagine what it was like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking out of that fire going, dang, (laughs) we have a story to tell. That was awesome. They walked differently after that day. If they had their head down, they walked with their head up. They're just like, nothing can touch us now. I mean, just think about what that did to their relationship. They said, all right, God promoted us. Let's keep going. Let's keep doing this thing. And I want to challenge you, find friends and change the world together. Don't go alone. Don't go isolated. It's a beautiful moment for us to celebrate. So in closing... The first thing I wanted you to see was God's view of humanity. So how do we accomplish that today? We understand that us being in culture is an opportunity for the kingdom to be revealed. And sometimes that's all that happens. God reveals himself and there's no response. That's okay. God wants to reveal himself. You see, God is the God of invitation. We always think in our head, man, if this happens, then this is going to happen. This is why we're not the judge, the lawyer. This is why we're called witnesses. All we simply do is reveal who God is. Second question I wanted us to wrestle with was, how did this show us that God cared deeply about humanity and how can we be a part of his mission to humanity? It's evident that he cared deeply for, by, for humanity by he inviting us to participate in the mission of Jesus in humanity. And we see that with these three men. The last thing I want to address today is why the conversation of Christians engaged in the depths of culture is important and vital. You see, it is in culture where courses are set for nations, where courses are set for people, where courses are set for generations to come. So it is vital that you and I, it's less about trying to get to the top of culture. It's more about being leavened in culture. And I know in the future, I want to spend more time talking about the differences of approaches. And I think they're all beautiful, but there is an approach that I, I feel very passionate about. And I feel like we're actually called to bring leaven in culture. And leaven is similar to yeast. When you put yeast in flour, it elevates the dough. It actually brings it to a new status, a new texture, a new material. 
And what I love about that analogy that Jesus used it to be in leaven, in the loaf, in the lump, he's actually calling us to be in culture to elevate it, to be what it was designed to be. Sometimes that's from a, you're leading it, and sometimes you're in a bottom. There's a great phrase, it goes something like this. Movements start from the bottom up. Culture is created from the top down. So I want to challenge you today. When you look at culture, some of you, your role is just to be loved. Actually, all of us. But some of you, your positions in culture are going to be different than the person you're sitting next to. But I want to encourage you. It's vital that we are willing to be a people that are willing to engage in culture. And what's funny, it's not even a choice because you're in it right now. You're in culture right now. Everywhere you go, where you spend your money, who you spend your time with, where you drive, where you work, all of that is culture. So instead of just being a part, an observing of, observant, observer of culture, why don't we now switch it to let's participate and let's see what Jesus wants to do in this context. Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can go check out our website, studiogreenville.com, and you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.